If you can try to make a light guess as to the amount of time per hour or per day that you spend in those 11 other fields, those fields that are only there either for a trust issue from management or some sort of grandfathered reason that nobody even knows why they're there anymore, if you can start to do the math, math that your eight-year-old can do, you can start to form a pretty cogent argument. Hey, I spend about eight minutes an hour in these extra fields and I spend about eight hours a day And so now I start to do math and I notice, hey, my value of my time is about 50 bucks an hour. Hey, manager, I'm noticing that I'm spending X thousands of dollars a year entering information into CRM fields that are there for no functional purpose. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Juliet Funt. She's the founder and CEO of the Juliet Funt Group and author of a book that has risen high on a list of my favorites titled A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. And today is a special holiday episode from our archives. It's a replay of one of our most popular episodes from the past year. Now, in our conversation, Juliet and I talk about the importance of giving yourself room to think reclaiming what she calls white space in your day. And white space is what she calls time with no assignment. And I love that phrase. So we dig into what white space is, how it benefits you in terms of fighting cognitive fatigue and overload. And we talk about what white space isn't in terms of meditation and mindfulness. As Juliet shares, white space is a more purposeful use of time than those. We dive into a discussion about the dangers of busyness and the three factors that drive our busyness. Uh, Things like fear of missing out, conformity, or just plainly wasting our time. Now, before we get to Juliet, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review. We'd really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Juliet, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. Well, excited to talk to you. I mean, okay, I want to get personal for a second first is because this is probably meaningless to most people that listen to the show, but since I'm ancient, uh, it's not, is <laughs> your father was your father was Alan Funt. Now, yes. we have generations of listeners who probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but you know, Alan Funt was a household name growing up. Uh, so for people who aren't familiar with what your father did, fill us in. Yes. My my dad created the very, very first ever reality television show. It was like punked back in the days when taste exactly. was in style. That's the line that I say. And <laughs> and and it was it was the precursor though to every single element of reality television and reality yeah. advertising. So anyone ever who's on camera, whether it be a taste test of a soda or a hidden camera interview or a reality television show, those all stemmed from the seeds of candid camera, which used to be candid microphone before television and then became candid camera and then led to the entire genre. And does Ashton Kutcher pay you a royalty? (laughs) No, my dad tried. There were some brief lawsuits in the 70s that kind of went nowhere around uh, totally hidden video. And then it all became public domain at a certain point. Yeah. Uh, Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, Candid Camera was, I mean, I remember begging my parents to let me stay up to watch Candid Camera because I normally didn't get to, but uh, every time I did, it was like, 
well, this is fabulous. Yeah. You know, people are on camera saying things. They have no idea what they're saying. And, and as you said, it was, it was done with a much more gentle touch than most a reality program today, but, um, it was, yeah, a milestone. So I, I presume you can see episodes online, right? You can see stuff on YouTube for sure. Yeah. And I maybe, maybe if the one tangential connection to our content for today is that my dad definitely installed in me the gene of observer of the human condition. He was passionately right. curious about what makes people tick and what gets in their way and what's natural for them. And I definitely have that same curiosity that led to a lot of the work that we'll talk about today. All right. So one other personal question before we get into the meat of the matter. So what's your favorite way to consume Nutella? <laughs> A gigantic <laughs> spoon from the jar. Don't don't mess with perfection. Why is that your opening question? This is my new favorite podcast. Oh, well, I yeah, love it. Well, yeah, you basically said like a day wrote a day without Nutella is like a day without sunshine, give or take. Right? Uh, paraphrasing. So. It's from the Cuba story in the book, and we were. Uh, right. It's a story about bringing supplies to to Cuba, and there is a German photographer, a friend of ours named Sven, who we bring a gigantic vat of Nutella to every time we arrive. It's uh, probably hundreds of dollars in customs fees, but it's worth it. <laughs> All right. Well, I had to ask. I like my yes. wife makes a, a Nutella babka, which is to die for. So that's Ooh. one of my favorite ways to consume it. We've yeah. just lost all your lead. All your listeners now between Candy Camera and Nutella have now switched no, to another no, podcast. No. But we're having fun. No, no, no. We we talk about a wide range of issues here. Most I'm a I'm a soccer obsessive. So usually we're talking about soccer at this point. But mm. uh, yeah. All right. So loved your book uh, titled A Minute Thank to you. Think Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness. And do your best work. So, um, yeah, you wrote that you revere those open windows of time because you find them so elusive. So, mm. but we need them. You're right, but we absolutely need them. So, so tell us what you mean. You what this concept you call white space. Sure. The the way to enter it really is through the foundational metaphor of the book, which is if you imagine building a fire, what you would do first is you as- assemble all the necessary materials. You might have dry pine needles or newspaper, fire starter, and then maybe a couple different kinds of wood. I've been taught soft wood catches fast and hard wood burns long, so that's a good combo. Mm-hmm. But if you fail to ingre- uh, add one ingredient to that fire, it would never ignite. And that ingredient is the space, the open places in between that allow the flames to ignite. And this idea is one that we forget everywhere in life except uh, you know when we're in front of a hearth we forget it at work we forget it in our personal lives it is the space in between that we so desperately need and so inserting open time a little space to think a little space to breathe a little space to be strategic or step back is a powerful accelerant to the little spark that we all bring to work every day but it is a missing element in modern work yeah and as you said the, the as you're right the the, the white space yeah, helps fight you know cognitive fatigue and overload and and stress to to a large degree. Um, yeah, All sorts a- of things. Any where you? I just wanted to get to the white. You're using white space and jumping to the technical term. The white came from looking at paper squares on an executive calendar that was unplanned in the back in the days when I did o- executive coaching and realizing that the more right. white space, literal white, was on the page, the better the day would unfold. Yeah. Well, and this is it. Sort of gets to the the heart of things. Is that 
is that it seems like people find it so difficult to give themselves permission to have that white mm. space on their calendar that somehow uh, there's something wrong with them if they're not booked solid from dawn till dusk. Yes, we abhor the gap. We fear the gap. Yeah. We're self-conscious about it. And what is too bad is that if you actually look at high-achieving people, they all embrace it and take it for granted. Bill Gates takes two weeks a year just to go to a cabin and just think Phil Knight of Nike used to have a chair in his living room that was designated only for daydreaming. Jack Welsh, Jeff Weiner. We can go on and on about people who have achieved colossal things because they take thinking time as their right. They claim it, they revere it, and they wouldn't even understand how to work without it. But a couple of rungs down, we really struggle with that permission, permission to just take a minute. And, but you write and point out importantly in the book that taking this minute, because, you know, now we've got all these apps on our phone, calm, headspace, da, 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 that white space is not taking time to meditate or taking time to be, you know, to go do a mindfulness exercise. It's, it's something different. It is. And it's a, it's a subtle delineation, but an important one to make. I'm a meditator myself and I'm an advocate for it, but meditation is still doing something. When you meditate, you have a subtle aspect of instruction in the moments that you're meditating. You may be asked to mm -hmm. follow a breath, a candle, a mantra. Maybe you're listening to a voiceover telling you to imagine certain things. That's still directing the mind softly toward a chosen destination. In white space, as we define it, we call it time with no assignment. This is you're in you're a dog in the park without a leash and your mind can run, thinking about <laughs> anything it wants, unencumbered by rules, unencumbered by instruction. And it's it's what we're missing. We never have that freedom. Yeah, it's 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 having the the purpose of no purpose basically, right? I mean, it's it's there's no intent involved with it. The intent is liberated exploration. Sometimes right. we need it to just rest. Sometimes we need it to create. Sometimes we need to hear a tiny whisper of a little intuitive thought or idea or self-reflection and be quiet enough to follow it. All of this improvisational mental territory cannot be accessed if we don't give ourselves that initial freedom. And since, you know, your audience is so many, uh, such a high percentage of sales folks, this aspect of the sales process, when we think about the person, who am I about to get on a call with? What were they like last time? What went well? What didn't? What do they love? How, what, how do I show up? Thoughtfulness around the sales process is absolutely one aspect of how this fluid time is used, but many, many salespeople um, forget how important that is. Yeah, well, they think it's more important to be busy. Uh, they're, mm -hmm. they're pushed to be busy. They're measured by, you know, oftentimes by the quantity of things they do, uh, mm -hmm. which, you know, plays right into this this idea, sort of the evils of you know, what you're calling busyness, uh, which actually the, the portrait you draw in the book is actually kind of chilling about, you know, the way we, we fill our days and wonder why we're not making progress made on things that are most important to us because we're not allocating time to just think about them. I think almost every professional has had that moment where they look up kind of at the ceiling at the end of an 11-hour day and they kind of think for a minute and they think, what did I do today? What did it? Was there one 
critical, meaningful thing that I move forward. And often they just can't access it. And it's if it was chilling to you when you read it, I'll tell you we're in a time in professional history right now where we have never been in such a crisis of freedom and burnout on opposite sides of the, of the spectrum. I, I think that people, I, I was, I've been worried about this for a long time, but I've never been more worried than I am now. Yeah. Well, I was going to mention earlier is, is that there was a survey that just came out conducted by an organization called Uncrushed um, in sales of salespeople, business-to-business salespeople. And I forget the sample size. I think it was 2,000, 2,500, something like that. But mm-hmm. uh, 75% report being stressed or extremely stressed mm. uh, right now. And the the percentage that uh, I don't know, this study or another one of percentage of mental sales professionals that you know, seek professional help for mental health issues is, is mm-hmm. like 40%. I mean, it's, it's huge. And a lot of it's caused not, well, caused by the very things you're talking about here. Augmented by the pandemic's intensification of everything yes, of because course, we, right. we are, you know, we're on this unique path. I, I do think also that the heart-centered leaders who are offering everybody a wellness day are on the right track, but they're applying the wrong medicine because a wellness day is a great start, but it's kind of like if you have a starving man and then once a quarter you give him a binge, it's still not yeah. a daily reprieve. And what we need is <laughs> no. a workflow, right? That we can't fix 17 months of exhaustion with a wellness day, which by the way, they're just going to use to finally wait on hold for the bank or catch up on laundry or, you know, that's, there's got to not be so much wellness in that wellness day in my, in my personal opinion. Yeah. I had somebody on the show a few years ago was talking about, you know, their company was creating a learning culture. I said, really, how are you Mm. doing that? Well, once a year we have a learning day. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing a great job there. Yeah, if you had a breathing culture that operated along those standards, you'd be you'd be in big trouble. We'd all be dead, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, here's and here's the irony, and you have we're touching on this before we we start recording, which is that yeah, there's this this you're, you've never been more concerned about this and this this sort of epidemic of of uh, you quote this economist like I thought it was a great quote uh, calling it performative busyness mm-hmm. um, is. We're not getting anything more done. We're incessantly busy, but we're not more productive in terms of what we're producing that's that's you know contributing towards achieving whatever goals we have. And part of that is in the larger companies, we're just crushed by this addiction to low-value work, which we talk a, a lot about in, in part of the book, that there is a, a tolerance of emails and meetings and decks and reports and paperwork that are, in a sense, just activity without productivity. And it's that show. that definition is a big problem. Yeah, it's show basically. It 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 is. It's that that's the line performative busyness, but I think it's also right. a habitual busyness. It's that as long as our hands are moving and our fingers are typing, we have some sense that something important must be going on, but often it's not. And and yet conversely, if I took let's say I took five brilliant salespeople and I put them in a room for five hours and I said to them, all I want you to do is think about your sales process. And they didn't do anything. They didn't send any emails. They didn't call anybody. They just pondered and mulled and wandered Mm -hmm. around the room. 
if at the end of that five hours, they came up with a spectacular change in the way that they approached their value proposition or their own personality as it shows up in the sales process, that would have been a spectacularly productive day, but it would not have been an active day. And, and until we understand that binary relationship sometimes between activity and productivity, we're still going to be separated from the meaning and success that we want at work. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now, one of the big problems in sales is there's a, yeah, the conflation of activity with productivity, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is, hey, if I send 50, my goal is send 50 emails a day, I was productive. Now, right. the fact that none of those 50 emails generated any sort of activity that you could follow up on with a, with a buyer. Uh, so by definition, it wasn't productive. No one really cares to some degree. It's, I got my 50 in. It's not only self-generated, though, that the salespeople sometimes are in their own personal habitual groove of creating that activity, but it also has to do with the rewards and rules that they live within. So if you have to calendar 20 meetings a week, you're going to find seven low-value meetings to throw in to make your 20, even though you know that it would be better to focus on the 13 high-value meetings of the week, but you're not allowed to. And that we've seen this time and time again, coaching and training sales teams, that they're they're torn between their instinctive sense of wanting to work on the gold rather than check the boxes, but they don't have a choice. Well, so let's let's dive into that though, because yeah, you had a, a really interesting quote in the book from uh, Solomon Ash, uh, who does mm. social conformity research, and I, and this conformity is one of the I think and I believe, and I'm part of what I address in my new book is coming up next year is is this this trend to increasing trend to conformity and it plays in this whole notion of business right because you talk about uh, i think you talk about people you know engage in activity to sort of brush up their curb appeal uh, mm-hmm. to use their a real estate metaphor you know the, give the perception yes. that i'm actually doing something but yeah you know, one of the dangers of these a lot of the technologies come into sales is that it's given more transparency into the actual activities that are happening. And so people are being measured more on activities and, and having processes that enforce compliance to, to these activity sets and KPIs has increased tremendously. And, um, and it, it, I don't, I, to me, it's, it's a real danger. This is, this is, this is one of the things that really hurts our productivity in this profession is this, the sense that everybody has to conform. And no one can be themselves. But some are not. And some are some are realizing that in this moment post-pandemic that there is a spectacular opportunity to to want things to be different and to 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 get those messages upward toward management. There was a, you you quoted um a recent study. There was another one done by Monster. Granted, the sample size was only 700 people, but the job site Monster said that 95% of people, 95% of people who answered their most recent survey were considering leaving their current job. And in this market where people are, they're sort of at an emotional edge where they can't take the tolerated misery anymore and leaving and jumping and making profound changes in the way that they live feels more possible than ever. I think employers are going to have to pony up with more logical ways of working to keep people right now. And even the people that are staying are beginning to become vocal about what they want in a different way. I just think some of our thin-skinned post-pandemic realness is beginning to crest, and I hope it leads to a whole new line of dialogue about what people really want at work. Well, 
yeah, I mean, you've, yeah, I'm sure you've read the research that says, I don't know, I was laughing about this last night with my wife, is, is I forget what the exact study was talking about. Oh, some aspect of, of work after pandemic, but the data is already showing that the predictions they made 12 months ago aren't coming true. Um, and I think, well, well, maybe one of those I remember thinking about was, um, you know, people's taught no shortage articles are re- written recently about uh, return to the office and how that will spur innovation and creativity because, uh, you know, bringing people together and having them interact, you know, is that spur that they want. But you sort of make the argument, which I think is pretty compelling, is that actually <laughs> if you bring them together but don't give people time to think, you're not going to get that creativity and that innovation that you want. Right. The the separation that you want to think about and for every person out there who wants their work to feel different is you have to think about the where topics in return to office and the how topics. The where topics are where will we sit? Where will real estate be sold or kept? How will desks look? All that where stuff is very, very focal in our minds right now. Mm -hmm. But how is being sublimated by the where and how is where we can make work? We have an opportunity right now to finally change the fact that work is the most unpleasant part of people's lives. This is the moment where we have a spectacular opportunity for redesigning pretty much everything. We're going back to a blank slate. So reducing stupid work, having more positive conformity, having people really stand up and say, this isn't working for me anymore. I I think that we're in a window right now where more of that is possible than ever. And I'd like to encourage if, if people are listening and they look around and their current how kind of sucks, this is the moment to start talking to like-minded friends at work and saying, how can we begin to talk about this out loud with leaders? Well, how do they do that? Because I, and I think that's really a critical point, and it's something, again, I talk about in my upcoming book, is that sellers have to grab back autonomy, mm-hmm. right? Is this, this whole trend towards compliance conformity has damaged their ability to achieve what they need to achieve, what they want to achieve in their careers. Absolutely. And, so let me give and, you some hows then. Yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah, I I think because there really are tangible things that people can do. And I think that we have to acknowledge that there is no they doing it to us anymore. We have internalized this worship of busyness, this complacency around wasteful work. A lot of it, we we just cause it now. It's inside of us. So if I was talking to one individual person sitting out there who works in an illogical and choking workflow and wants to change it, I would tell them to do a couple of things. So first of all, I would think, uh, I would try to think through the lens of quantification wherever possible. Meaning if you want to talk to leaders, sometimes you have to talk the language of money. So as an mm-hmm. example, I'll give you an example. When our when we work with clients, we do surveys to show the cost of wasted work as run by salary data. We take right. salary data. We ask people, how many stupid emails do you send? How many stupid meetings do you sit in? How many nonsense reports do you read? And then we take the time that's wasted and we quantify it. The number that is evidenced is usually around a million dollars of annual waste for every 50 people annually. Now, that is a spectacular number. It's the equivalent of taking 12 out of 50 people and saying to them, just go uh, eat Doritos and play video games all day long. That's the value now of 12 out of 50 people. So if you think through this powerful lens of quantification, you may be able to see some places where you can begin dialogue. For instance, let's say you're a salesperson who works in a CRM. And let's say your CRM has 
17 fields where you know that only six are really functionally necessary for the work that you do. If you can try to make a light guess as to the amount of time per hour or per day that you spend in those 11 other fields, those fields that are only there either for a trust issue from management or some sort of grandfathered reason that nobody even knows why they're there anymore, if you can start to do the math, math that your eight-year-old can do, you can start to form a pretty cogent argument. Hey, I spend about eight minutes an hour in these extra fields, and I spend about eight hours a day, and so now I start to do math, and I notice, hey, my value of my time is about 50 bucks an hour. Hey, manager, I'm noticing that I'm spending X thousands of dollars a year entering information into CRM fields that are there for no functional purpose. And that lens, just starting to think about numbers, is a really powerful way to begin a dialogue. Another way to begin a dialogue is through the doorway of humanity instead of business. To look around and notice that the wellness issues, the the depression, the marital stuff, the crying moms, everything that we've been seeing in interviews with leaders over the last 18 months has an effect on a salesperson's ability to perform. Absolutely. If you have the ability to start a dialogue about how are we really, the machines that are us that are supposed to show up and do this job of selling, if we're exhausted and unstable and pulling it together with caffeine and sugar and stimulants to try to just walk in the door, are we really being optimized as sales professionals? And that wellness angle can can be another place for creating dialogue. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm I'm a little more skeptical about that because I think that it's it's getting lip service um in sales because this i mean this data is not not new i mean there's some people projecting that you know top performers after this last 18 months are many of them are just gonna choose to do something different um but it's you look at the investment yeah how many uh companies have invested in you know wellness programs for their teams a very small number um, is yeah. How many have trained, or I guess an example I use oftentimes is you know if you're a sizable organization, if you're a fan of the show Billions. Um, <laughs> I love Billions. Right, but if you're if you had a company with fifty salespeople, you don't think you could justify having a Wendy on staff? Hmm. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. You absolutely right. should. I mean, the, right. the payback on that compared to um, any, you know hiring another salesperson would be more than justify doing that. But it wouldn't begin to enter the mind of leadership because they look at sales as you know increasingly as sort of these interchangeable cogs in a in a machine, and um, you know. I I would maybe playfully debate you to say that I just got off a call with Dell an hour ago, which is a spectacularly mm-hmm. old-fashioned type template for a company, and they are doing exactly that. So I think that some, I think there oh, yeah. there are some places where the pain is so extreme right now that people are being forced to act. But I want to give you I want to give you a third option though, and that is we talked sure. about creating dialogue through quantification, powerful lens, dialogue around wellness, very immediate need. But then there's mo- moments where you take things into your own hands. So there's not a person listening that can't use the tool I'm about to teach to just say, okay, if none of that works, if no one will listen to me that my workflow is crazy, I'm going to start using a tool called the wedge. The wedge is simply the idea of taking a small moment of open space, 
open white space time mm-hmm. and inserting it, imagine a wedge with a point, inserting it in between two activities that previously would have been connected. So it's a little sip of open time between a call and a call, between a question and your response, between a meeting and a meeting, between receiving an email that's difficult and firing back your answer. And these wedges of time as we open up the day, whether they're three seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds, they begin to oxygenate us in a way that is very, very different from the way that we work without them. And so I would say that as a training wheels technique for people to begin saying, all right, if nothing else changes around me, at least I'm going to take these little open moments to recalibrate and re-strategize, that alone can begin to make a very big difference in the way that work feels. Yeah. And you talk about in the book is practice by setting a one-minute timer, right? To do that. Um, <laughs> to, to force yourself, you know, do it on your watch. Uh, yeah. It's not like doing a Pomodoro timer, but just you know, between activities, time yourself for a minute. You can do a minute. You can do improv. Some people like timers. Some people like improv. But I'm I'm literally lowering the bar to five seconds, uh, ten seconds. It the wonderful thing about white space is it is so powerful so quickly. And I, we I won't do this during your precious podcasting time. But if we took ten seconds, we'd finish it, and you would say that was ridiculously unexpectedly long, because we don't really understand how time feels when we stop the machine. So powerful impact in a very short period of time. Yeah. Well, let's let's want to talk about uh, time thieves, as you call them, mm. um, because I think this is again another very interesting part of the book. Because things that we think are desirable oftentimes aren't, uh, or lead to behavior that that's not, uh, as you call sort of the mortar between the bricks. So you talk about drive excellence information activity as, as time thieves. And again, on surface, they seem sort of, wow, drive seems desirable. Excellence information activity sounds desirable. So what is it about these things that are time thieves? Uh, Well, the thieves are desirable. That's the irony and surprise of them. They're fantastic assets that we all want, but then they run amok. So they they tend to remind me of, there's a plant in California called Morning Glory. I don't know if you've ever seen your San Diego guy. Maybe you've seen this. So you drive by it the first time. You see this purple, gorgeous fairy tale vine. You say, I want that. You go to the garden center, you plant it on your property. And then in 30 minutes, it's taken over. It's choking the dog. You can't use your bicycles anymore. It's just absolutely rampant and it's resistant to pesticides. And that's the thieves. They are beautiful, vibrant, and uh, unstoppable. So drive becomes overdrive. Excellence becomes perfectionism. Information, right. which we love to access, becomes information overload. And our and our lust for activity just turns into frenzy, just insanity. And so it's only when they overgrow that they become the thieves of time. And so we have to have ways of reducing them. Each person leans toward a different thief. Even companies can have a dominant thief and some people find themselves equally hampered by all four. Yeah. And I, I love sort of the questions you, you pose in the book to ask yourself about how to, well, again, like this expression, so how to decrapify what you do is- yes. Is uh, you say when drive turns it overdrive, then you need to ask yourself, "Hey, is there anything I can let go of?" 
which is a, yes, a great we, question. Yes, we have four questions. They Probably we should pick one to go into because without slides, sure. four in a row is a little thick. But the third one is one that I think might be germane to the sales population. Sure. It's very fascinating one is when information overgrows to information overload, we ask ourselves, what do I truly need to know? And it is that truly, that real questioning of what do I actually functionally need to know to make a tactical difference in the result of this sale versus where do I get lost in research and dashboards and scoreboards and numbers and spreadsheets? And we do want to research when it's tactically important, but we don't want to get lost in the recreational aspect. Right. And I, I spin that just a little bit in terms of what do I truly need to know is say what what do I really, what do I truly need to understand? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I think that in sales, there's a, a priority placed on gathering information, but not enough on understanding the information they gather, right? Mm. Here's a scripted list of questions to go ask your customers, get the answers to these 10 questions. Well, as a result, you've got information, but you don't have understanding. Mm-hmm. And so, it's that you know crossing that chasm chasm from from information to understand. I think it's really critical. So I, yeah, with information, right? It's easy to turn into overload. I've got the answers to these questions, but what do I really understand? And then we take it to the next level, which is if you have a salesperson who takes for granted that their day should have thoughtful time in it, who who acknowledges that thinking time has value, then what that person would do with that list or those questions is they would then mull. They would sit with them Mm -hmm. and go, what do I do with this? How does this show up in a human being? What does this imply in the way that I talk? What, what, What analogy or story or reference would be sexiest to this particular human on the other end of the call or the, or the digital line? And this reflection time occurs if you have enough white space, if you're moving from right. call to call to call to call, you know, flipping in your Herman Miller from one to the other without spilling your coffee, like the sales pros that you are, you miss out on an entire line of inquiry that could lead to fantastic connection with people. So agree. I mean, I, I call it rumination time, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is what I've seen is this trend is, again, given the advent of CRM and all these technologies is that yeah, I'm going to put the information into CRM and I know it's there. And it's like this extension of me, but I'm not going to think about it because it's in there. And I always know I can go access it. But as a result, sellers oftentimes don't take the time to just sort of let it sort of ruminate and float around in their mind and, and think about these deals. It's like I use the, <laughs> the saying is that it's like people treat life like it's an open book test, right? It's like I can mm. always go get the information. But yeah, I believe, as you said, is the, the spur to creativity, the new ideas, the new perspectives, the thinking deeply about the other person, what might be the most important thing for them to accomplish, come when you give yourself this time to just ruminate and let ideas wander around in your head. I'll throw out another tool that they can play with. It came from one of the interviews. It's actually not in the book, but when I got a wonderful opportunity to interview the amazing John Cleese of Monty Python for the book, mm-hmm. he taught me one of these uh, reflective activities that actually has become one of my biggest creative accelerants, and I've been talking about it everywhere since. What what he the, It's based on a story. He was with one of the other Pythons in the old days, and he began to notice that that particular performer didn't quite 
come up with as fresh uh, and uh, ideas on a regular basis as he did. And so he began to analyze the difference in their processes. And he realized that when the other performer would come up with an idea, if it was a good solid idea, they would run with it. Not so with Cleese. What Cleese's habit was, he would come up with a very good idea, then he would set it aside and he would return to investigating. And then if he came Mm -hmm. up with another good idea, he would set it aside and he would return to investigating. And that, as applied to sales, I find very, very interesting to come up with an idea. What's the subject line going to be? What's the pitch going to be? What's the freebie going to be? But not to run with the first idea, to have the patience to set aside. Yep, that's a good idea. Let's park it for now and keep exploring and keep exploring with the patience to investigate deeper into that open time, I think can be extremely fruitful rather than going with the jumpy habit of, okay, I thought of an idea. Now I'm on to the next and adopting the first. Right. Well, I think it's a just a great life lesson, right? I mean, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, responding to a comment from your partner or spouse or, you know, whatever, is that the pause is important. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, the, the most important chapter in the book, in my opinion, is the last chapter in the book, which has nothing to do with work, which is taking open time home with you so you can be present with joy and hobbies and family and children and you don't miss your life. And that if I have a mission, the entire first 10 chapters of this business mm-hmm. book were written to support the 11th chapter, which is where my heart <laughs> is. And that is, right. that is to take the white space home with you. And I think one of the great habits you talk about in the book, uh, which I, I think is is great, and I've <clears throat> been trying to put into practice the last few days since I finished reading the book, is your your email diet. Mm, oh uh, yes, because you're talking about creating space, white space at home, right? And so, tell us about the, the email diet. Sure. So the 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 key to not being overwhelmed with email is to do two things: to touch it less or compose it better. Touching it less gives you less moments per day when you're in email, and composing it better creates a team environment where email takes up less time because it's efficient. And in the touch it less category, we're big fans of interval checking, which means that you don't check whenever you feel like it. You check at the top of every hour or the top and bottom of every hour. The email diet is based on the model of feeding your hunger for email with the same intervals as you might feed your body. We give you three meals a day and two snacks. So that would be breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And maybe you get a 10.30 and a 1.30 nibble. So that's something like 9, 11, 1, 3, and 5 would be a very sane and manageable email diet. And again, autonomy is so important, but if a salesperson is in email every single second of the day, I can promise you that that shallow stimulating activity is keeping them from that deeper thoughtful work that we just described. And we'll add on to that, social media, right? Yes. So sips of that at at compartmentalized times, always very important. In fact, it's not in the book. It's a great point, but I um, pair my social checks with my email check. So if I'm in the world of digital checking, I will go ahead and get both out of the way. I don't separate them because it's very nice pairing to just get them both out of the way. At the same time, many of us have evolved to a point where we are aspiring to check social even less often, once a day or twice a day. And honestly, many, many, many people can live with far fewer email checks than they think. There's just that hallucinated urgency that we talk about in the book. Something terrible will happen if I'm not checking every second. And, And once you begin to realize that that's a hallucination, um, the price you pay for abstaining in periods of the day is far less than you think. 
Yeah, I mean, your example with Kai, Guy Kawasaki and the the book about deleting his you know, twenty thousand <laughs> emails in his inbox or something, uh, and nothing happened is you know a great example of of just spending too much time in it. Um, and yeah, I, again, I have a sample size of just a couple of days now that I've been following the email diet. But uh, how has it um, been for you? It's been great. I mean, I. It, it was a habit to do it otherwise, right? It's just right. unthinking, unthinking habit um, is actually having a moment of time. The habit was to click email and check, see if something came in. Um, so right. now it's, okay, I've got the trigger. Instead of impulsively checking email, what choice am I going to make to do something different? That's yeah, to read or think or now you're in a very important little mini awareness right now is that you think that moment where you go, okay, I was going to check email and now I'm not. And what you learn in that second is that you have no idea what to do other than that. So you're forced into this moment of, wow, what else could be next? And you look at your calendar and you realize you have 20 minutes till the next call. And then, then it gets weird. And then you start realizing, <laughs> I, I have no idea how to busy myself right. if I don't fill with a digital sip. And that's when it also gets exciting because that's when you start saying, I could do 15 minutes on a timer of some really deep work. I could take a restorative five minutes that my body desperately needs. I could mm. go stand next to someone I respect and listen to them talk in a physical office and maybe glean some wisdom from human beings around a coffee machine. And it's it's almost like we have to start like babies to remember, what do I do again if I have 15 minutes free and I don't check email? It's It's almost remedial to start over, right. but so important. Well, it's a great way to think about it, right? That's almost remedial. Is, is yeah, it's just become so ingrained, and I and I think yeah, email is one thing. I think social is another. Um, certainly, LinkedIn. You know, we're on LinkedIn constantly throughout the day. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, I mean, I've <laughs> have somebody nudging me all the time. Is like, uh, yeah, are you responding to all those comments? And it's like. Yeah, I'm just not going to do that at the drop of a hat. I'll, <laughs> I've got time. I've got budgeted. I'm going to respond. And I know the algorithm probably rewards me if I would do it instantly, but uh, I'm just not going to do that. Yeah, if we if we spent our day being following the rewards of the algorithm, we'd be in very, very dangerous Orwellian territory really quickly. Well, yeah, I think we probably are already. So it's, yeah. Well, Julia... Um, Great book. I, I Thank encourage you. people to read it. Um, again, title of the book is A Minute to Think. Um, and Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. And yeah, I think it's, it's as we talked before, so the right book for the right, the right time. And mm. I'm certainly concerned for people in sales that are being forced, I said, to comply to activity-driven processes that Maybe there's a way to, you know, start thinking about how to reclaim some of your autonomy in a way that's that's really important. And it's as absolutely you point out book, doable. It's right. so doable. It's so book, doable. Right. And if you, as you point out in the book, is again the Solomon Ash study is if one person does it, then uh, there's a chance that many people will do it, which is mm. positive. 
It's it's something that I've seen over and over in organizations that felt that they couldn't make a motion in that direction. It has to do with people doing it together. It has to do with yeah. walking through the ideas as a team and creating that mutuality and that support. Got it. All right. Well, if people want to connect with you. What's the best way for them to do that? The most exciting thing that we have to offer right now for them is to go to julietfunt.com and take the busyness test. We've created a way that they could take an individual assessment to take a closer look at their day-to-day choices and activities and learn actually how to uncover that breathing room for creativity and strategic thinking. Best way to do it is get your whole team, take the test together, and then sit around and discuss your results. Perfect. All right, Juliet, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Juliet Funt, for sharing her insights with us again. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Oh,